Okay, good morning. I think my microphone's coming along with me here in a minute. I should say this morning that uh, you know that Tom Wright was prepared to preach to you on our snow day two weeks ago, and uh, we're not going to miss that message. Next Sunday, uh, Tom will be bringing that message to us, and then in, in two weeks, I'll be speaking again on the subject of hope. This just happens to be Resurrection Sunday, and we are talking about the whole matter of our hope. And so it is certainly appropriate for us to say that we will deal with the subject of the hope of the resurrection, for surely those two are very much connected. This is not going to be an effort on my part to prove to you uh, from the scriptures or from some other argument that the resurrection took place. It seems to me that that is really God's job, and it has been well done in the scriptures, and it's been done before, and so I'm going to move to a little different area as I approach this lesson. And that is, I want to show the connection between the resurrection and the hope of the believer, and I want to show how that hope applies uh, in scripture to the message of the Bible as a whole, to those who were Old Testament saints, to those who were the disciples and apostles in the New Testament, and then to people today. I want to, at the end of this message, I want to come at it from just a little different perspective and look at hope from a different angle, and I want to try to connect several dots, uh, especially a couple of texts, one Old Testament text, and one New Testament text to see if we can't see some of the relevance of the subject of the hope of the resurrection for us as believers in Jesus Christ. But let's go, first of all, to the subject of resurrection and hope in the Bible. And I'm thinking about now the Bible as a whole. But when you look at the Old Testament, note how critical the whole area of the resurrection And the hope that it brings is to the argument of the Old Testament. When you look at the historical books, you see the hope of Abraham, a hope of resurrection. The New Testament says that Abraham realized that he and Sarah were as good as dead with respect to bearing children. And it was a resurrection hope then that Abraham had when he believed God, Genesis 15, 6, who said that he would give to he and Sarah a son through whom the covenant promises would be fulfilled. We see that perhaps more plainly from the Old Testament point of view in Genesis chapter 22, because that is where God has had Abraham send away the only other option, plan B, has been sent away, and now he says to Abraham that he is to sacrifice Isaac that one through whom the promised blessings were to be fulfilled. And obviously, that necessitated a belief on Abraham's part that God would raise Isaac from the dead if indeed he were to sacrifice him to the Lord. We think of Joseph, especially as it is interpreted in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, when he said that he wanted his bones taken Uh, from Egypt and taken back to the promised land because he believed the promises of God were going to be fulfilled to him and he wanted to be there in the promised land. 
again in Hebrews chapter 11, but as we see described in the book of Exodus, Moses had a hope, a resurrection hope, because when he had the opportunity of enjoying, as it were, the privileges, the perks of being the uh, son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to set those aside because he had a better hope, a hope of things that would come after his death, and therefore he chose to identify with the people of Israel. And then you have David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember when his son, the, the fruit of an illicit union with Bathsheba, when that son dies, David expresses his hope that he will see that son again. Now, not in your notes, but I think worth mentioning is Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, after the curse has been pronounced, it is a long listing of genealogies, and in every case, people died, which, of course, underscores the fact that the wages of sin is death. But in Enoch's case, you remember, it says he walked with God and he was no more. Early on in that first recitation of the death of men, there is that exception, which is a pointer to the future and the hope of the believer in the resurrection. And then there's Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. Remember where he has the chariot ride up into heaven? But you need to read that in the light of 1 Kings chapter 19. Because it's in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah has lost hope. He lost hope that God was going to bring about the restoration of Israel. And therefore he fled into the desert. He turned in his prophet's badge, he thought. And he wanted to die, the loss of hope. Now, his hopes were a little misguided, but the reality is that we see in the end of his life the fact that his hope is a hope for eternity. If you take all of those men and put them together, you come to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. All these men and women, people of faith in the Old Testament, died without receiving the promises because their hope was a heavenly hope, not an earthly hope. And so we see the hope of the believer in the Old Testament saints. Then you look at the poetic or the wisdom books uh, in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to refer to uh, two texts, the first in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Now remember, these are dark days for Job, right? These are difficult times for Job, but listen to what he says. Job 19, 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I will see for myself and whom my own eyes will behold, and not another. My heart grows faint within me. There's a great expectation of hope that in the resurrection, he will see God. Psalm 16, remember, is that psalm that is picked up in the the book of Acts where David says, I constantly trust in the Lord because he is at my right hand. I will not be upended. So my heart rejoices and I am happy. My life is safe. You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. 
you lead me in the path of life. The hope of resurrection. Now, Psalm 73, I'm going to hold for a little while, but there is another text in the poetic books that expresses the hope of the Old Testament saint in the resurrection. Now, when you come to the prophets in the Old Testament, again, you see this resurrection hope that is very clearly stated. Ezekiel chapter 37, I'm not going to sing it to you, those old bones, them dry bones, but God says to Ezekiel, Those bones in this vision, those bones are going to come to life. Now, that was a picture of what God was going to do. These are dark days for the nation Israel, and especially now for Judah, as they are just entering into captivity. Does the people of God have any hope? And here's what God says to Ezekiel based upon that vision of the bones in 3711 of the book of Ezekiel. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are all the house of Israel. Look, they are saying, our bones are dry. Our hope has perished. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am about to open your graves and will raise you up from your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people. I will place my breath in you and you will live. I will give you rest in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will act, declares the Lord. Is that not resurrection hope? In the prophets, it was Israel's hope. Then you remember in Daniel chapter 12, God has revealed to Daniel things that are about to come. And the whole chapter really has to do with that future hope. But look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12 and then the last verse of the chapter, verse 13. At that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nation's beginning up to that time. But at that time, your own people, all those whose names are found written in the book, will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting abhorrence. But the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse, and those bringing many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. And then the last verse, God says to Daniel, But you shall go your way until the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will arise to receive what you have been allotted. That is resurrection hope. Hope in the historical books, hope in the poetical books, hope in the prophetical books. And of course, that hope now is realized in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus began his ministry in John chapter 2 by hanging everything he did on the fact that he would rise bodily from the grave. John chapter 2. They didn't understand it yet, but they understood it later. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. That was the basis for his authority. Matthew chapter 12. Give us a sign. 
Jesus says, no other sign will be given than this, the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth, three days and three nights. His resurrection is the proof positive of what Jesus said he was and who he claimed to be. In the book of Acts, you see over and over again, the apostles now are witnesses of his resurrection. One of the qualifications that the apostles established for the replacement for Judas was that he must be a witness of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the preaching of the gospel, over and over, the apostles preach Jesus Christ is risen. That was the hope that was a part of the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, interesting there, Paul is speaking to the people at Athens And at the end of that message, he speaks about the fact that there will be a resurrection and there will be a resurrection of those to their rewards and of those to God's judgment. It was a key part of the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. In the epistles, if we had time, we could spend much uh, time talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as it was mentioned this morning. The resurrection is central to the gospel. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that we must believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead as well as confessing him with our mouth that he is Lord. We ought to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, and in the epistles, it is clear that if we do not have the resurrection of Christ from the dead, if there is no resurrection, we as People who believe in Christ, we are hopeless people because the resurrection is the key. So what I want to show you is that from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the hope of resurrection is central. When you look at the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see the introduction of death. Do you not? The wages of sin is death. And the day that you eat of the fruit of that forbidden tree, you will surely die. The only hope for mankind is the hope of some kind of resurrection from the dead, that there is life after death. And the whole message of the Bible is the message of how God is going to bring that resurrection to pass. That's why we see it all the way through the Old the, the Old Testament and the New as well. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it also speaks about our Lord Jesus as the last Adam. And so the point is, just as Adam, Romans chapter 5 does the same thing, just as in Adam all men have been constituted guilty sinners, so in Christ God has provided the solution for sin and life for those who believe. So it's a beautiful message. And therefore, in Revelation chapter 22, you remember, verses 1 and 2, it describes heaven as a garden. No surprise. And in that garden, there is a tree. And it is the tree of life from which men may eat. So in a sense, the message of the Bible is a message that comes full circle from life to death in Genesis And now from the death of Christ to life for all who believe and, we must say, life for all who do not believe. Because the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ assures the resurrection of all men from the dead. 
some to eternal life, some to eternal torment. So let's talk about the resurrection, hope, and the disciples. Now, this is not a new message, but I, but I at least want to bring it to your remembrance as we talk about this important subject. How did it change the disciples? When you think about the disciples as they're described in those early verses of Luke chapter 24, they're in great despair. They don't even remember that Jesus has said he will rise again. Enemies did. They did not. They were absolutely hopeless and in despair. And those verses that I asked Paul to read in Luke chapter 23, I think, help us to understand when you look at the crowds, Luke 23, 35, and their rulers, notice the challenge that is being made to Jesus on the cross. If you are the Christ, save yourself. Get yourself down from there. Then you have the soldiers in verse 36. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then you have one of the criminals beside Jesus. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, the whole mood at the crucifixion of our Lord was your being Messiah is contingent upon your delivering yourself. Now, they were right in a sense, were they not? If he had remained in the grave, it would have been a dead hope. But it wasn't that he was to come down from the cross and to be spared from death. He was to be spared or brought out of death into life. So the disciples, as they, as they saw themselves there, it, it was as though they had picked the wrong man. In the minds of the disciples, at that deepest point of despair, they had to be saying to ourselves, we thought we had it right, but we had to be wrong. Our hopes are gone. And then you have to think that they're saying to themselves, we've wasted three years of our lives. We walked away from those boats. We walked away from those nets. We thought this was an investment that would be good for years to come. And it's lost. All of that, a waste. And they saw no future for themselves except the future of hiding out from the law. Think about it. When our Lord Jesus comes to his disciples, where are they? In a locked room, hiding, shaking in their boots, because they now see themselves as those who are our Lord's allies and therefore criminals who are going to be sought out by Rome. That was the mindset of the disciples as you see them in the early part, I believe, of Luke chapter 24. And we know once... Our Lord has convinced them that he has been raised from the dead. Now they understand he indeed is the Messiah. That's the message they begin to preach almost instantly. His resurrection, his death and resurrection is the fulfillment of Scripture, something they did not see in their moments of despair. They now understand his death and his resurrection were an essential part of who he was and what he was to do as Messiah. So they went from sorrow to joy. They went from fear to boldness. And they went forth, therefore, declaring the scriptures, uh, realizing they had a great faith to proclaim. And 
they boldly proclaimed the gospel. That was the outcome of their joyful realization of the resurrection of our Lord. Now, let's talk about the resurrection hope and people today. This is a resurrection Sunday, and uh, at least to some measure, in some measure, people are faced with the reality that there is the claim or the belief on the part of some that Jesus has risen from the dead. I would say to those who have never crossed the line, who have never entrusted themselves to the work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the message of the resurrection of Christ in the scriptures ought to really give you pause for thought. It is not something you ought to pass from without careful thought and consideration. If Jesus made his entire message and ministry contingent on his ability to rise, then the very fact that the scriptures claim that he did rise ought to cause you to look at his message. You ought to look very carefully at what Jesus said about himself, about his death, about his resurrection. And I was thinking about that in relationship to people in the book of Acts. Even those people who may have been most rapidly opposed to Jesus were given pause for thought at the message of the resurrection. Now, you remember in the book of Acts, you move from, from the opposition to the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, coming primarily from the Pharisees, the sort of strict religious folks, to the book of Acts, where opposition now comes primarily from the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. Gamaliel, that teacher and instructor of the Apostle Paul before his conversion, in, in chapter 5, when they are, when they are ready to, to, to kill the disciples for preaching the gospel, he says, hold on one second. If indeed the leader is dead, the movement should be dead as well. If the leader is not dead, the movement will not die. And we had better be careful or we may be finding ourselves in opposition to God. Remember that? Now, I'm not saying Gamaliel came a, became a believer. I don't know. I am saying this. It gave Gamaliel pause for thought. And therefore, it ought to cause unbelievers to think about it too. The Pharisees in Acts chapter 23, remember when Paul is, is coming for trial before them and he realizes this is a kangaroo court and he calls out, I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I believe in the resurrection from the dead. Man, there's a just a riot that takes place. But the Pharisee says this, Who are we to say that God has not spoken to this man? See, they understood that there may well have been resurrection, and they needed to think about that and not to uh, do a knee-jerk reaction. The resurrection of Christ is the most frightening thought in the world to an unbeliever. Think about that. When you celebrate the resurrection for a Christian, it is the basis of our hope. For an unbeliever, it ought to be the occasion for the greatest fear of all. Because, the scripture says, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Whether you look at Jesus' words in John chapter 5, Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, or many other scriptures, Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you see over and over again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means 
Saints will be raised to their rewards. Unbelievers will be raised to eternal torment and punishment. That is a dreadful thought. And if you're here this morning, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I challenge you, give serious thought to the resurrection of Jesus and what that may mean for you. Now, for those who have trusted in our Lord Jesus, what we see is that the resurrection of Christ is the validation of our Lord and of his ministry. Remember in in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, who was a descendant of David with reference to the flesh, who was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection means that our sins have been forgiven and that we have a clear conscience before God. First Peter chapter 3 talks about the clear conscience that we get from cleansing. And therefore we have assurance, we have boldness, we have confidence. The writer of the Hebrews says we have an anchor for the soul. There is no doubt once the resurrection is clear, there is no doubt that we are a people of hope. There is no more fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Remember in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the resurrection of Christ is the basis for the certainty of our hope of eternity with God. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is in heaven, reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I want to I do something a little different, and I want to come at this matter of resurrection and hope from a slightly different perspective. But we need to start with a definition of hope. I would say hope is the eager anticipation of those blessings that God has promised to his people. Hope is an eager anticipation. In other words, it is something we not only believe is true, and it is not only something we know that is coming, it is something that we desire that is coming, and we wait with great expectation for that to come. Now, if that is true... What one word might you supply to describe the opposite of hope? Despair. I thought of that one too. And that's a great one. I thought of another word in psychobabble terms. Depression. Depression is the opposite of hope. Think about it. What do you do when you are depressed? For one thing, you're, you're not really inclined to read and even the scriptures for a believer. You tend to find that reading the scriptures is a difficult thing. Do you not? Associating with other believers 
Oftentimes in depression, what do you want to do? You want to withdraw. You want to draw back. You want to shelter yourself. And in terms of the outward uh, proclamation of your faith, in terms of evangelism, don't you kind of muzzle yourself? And you find yourself just, frankly, quiet about that. I would say when I read Luke chapter 24 in those early verses, I would say those two people on the road to Emmaus and also all the disciples, they were depressed, folks. They were depressed. Another thing that's true about depressed people is they're mad. Generally, they're angry. Is that not true? I mean, look at, look at Elijah in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. He's mad. And they want to quit. They really want to quit. Depressed people, de- depressed Christians are more inclined to fail, that is, to sin. I think you're more apt to sin in depression than you are in joy. So you take all of those things, and it seems to me that you can look at hope from the backside, and you can say, here is what a lack of hope produces. People who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they have, they have some good reason to be depressed. And if they knew the truth, they've got more reason to be depressed in terms of their future and in terms of who they are and what they have even in this life. Now, I want to try and connect a couple of passages, if I can. The first text is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. Peter says, but in fact, this is in the context of suffering. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. I would contend that people who are dimming in their hope are diminishing their evangelism. I I, I think it's a safe thing to say that people whose hope begins to dim finds that their message of evangelism begins to diminish. Think about when you were first saved. Most people will, <laughs> they will tell stories about how, you know, in their, in their zeal, they probably trampled all over appropriateness and political correctness and everything else, but they just blurted out their faith. And, and then as time passes, people kind of get silent. And I don't think it's because they've gotten smart. I think it's because the hope of the gospel and the hope that comes from resurrection has somehow dimmed in their minds. And and that makes their zeal for evangelism and it even makes the occasion where people ask of them, what is this hope that you've got that I don't have? If you're depressed, people aren't asking you about your hope, folks. They're telling you about their psychiatrist and who you ought to see. Now, I think that a lot of Christians, without knowing it, I think the church of Jesus Christ today is depressed in in the sense that I'm talking about of lack of real sense of hope. I have a friend some time ago who was at a business conference, and uh, in those conferences they have all these booths and whatever that people are selling their goods, 
And I don't remember what in particular this, this one booth was selling, but they were giving this little test. And you would sit down and you would answer a few questions and then they would, they would evaluate it. And this fellow was telling me that when he turned in his questions, this woman at the desk said to him, do you know that you're depressed? And he said, I never thought about it. I never thought about being depressed. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized it may very well be true. And I wonder if that's not so with a lot of Christians in the sense that we're just, we're just kind of dull on this, the resurrection. We're dull on the hope and the glory that lies ahead. And that has all kinds of implications, which certainly does not spell out good health. That leads me to another dot that I'd like to try to connect. I've preached on Psalm 73 before, but I never quite looked at it in the light of the resurrection hope. And yet, as I think about it, I believe it's true. When you look at the first part of the psalm, remember it's Asaph's psalm. He's he's involved in full-time Christian ministry. Poor old Asaph is looking out there in the church parking lot. He sees the cars that the heathen are driving and he sees his uh, moped. And and, and, uh, he looks around and he says, you know, these people have their Cadillac uh, health insurance plans and I don't. And, and you remember he talks about there's no, there's, uh, they have a, a fatness in their eyes. They look healthy. They don't seem to have the same maladies and whatever. All of that's distorted, of course. But that's his view. And he says, in effect, I was about ready to throw in the towel because it seemed to me that either God didn't know or didn't care. And what he's saying is, God had made promises to Israel. He made promises to me. And frankly, it doesn't look like those promises are being fulfilled. God also has made promises and statements about how he would deal with the wicked. And it doesn't look like that's happening either. In other words, Asaph was running low on hope. Would you agree? Running low on hope. And consequently, he says, my feet were near to stumbling. He was, he was thinking about, is it really worthwhile? Shall I just throw in the towel and give it up? What's the use if there is no hope? And then it says, and then I came to the sanctuary of God. Now, you know, I, I've, I've, as I've preached that, I, I think I've said, you know, you see it from God's perspective. It isn't just going to church, but it's looking at life from God's perspective. And that's true. But I'd like to suggest to you that what, the, the, what Asaph is saying is, I am now looking at it from the perspective of eternity. And that eternity and that perspective can only come through resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is this. As I look at those people, I realize that they may be having pleasures far beyond mine. But the time period that they'll enjoy those pleasures is this long. The time period of the blessings I will have in eternity is forever. And even now, in the midst of all of the agony that I'm going through, I come to realize that God is with me here and now. I may not have all the comforts and the joys and the blessings that I'll have in heaven, but I have the presence of God who is with me and for all eternity. In other words, the turning point for Asaph 
was the hope that comes from belief in the resurrection. That's my perspective. And that's why he can say, my flesh may fail, but the Lord is going to be with me forever. Isn't that right? Look at those verses. Uh, Start at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, in other words, when I pondered to understand why is it the wicked are, are doing well when God said they're going to be punished? Why is it that I'm seemingly being punished when God's word said I should do well, assuming he's righteous? He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Their end is after death. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Is that not resurrection hope? It is. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who were unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Here's the last thing I want to get right in your minds. That I may tell of your works. It is not until the hope of heaven is clearly embedded in Asaph's mind that evangelism enters into the equation. He is bitter. He is envious of the wicked until he starts seeing things in the light of the resurrection and what follows. That reminds him these are not people to be envied. These are people to be pitied. These are people who have not arrived. These are people who are headed for destruction. And now in his joy at knowing God is with him and that he has blessings forevermore in his joy he will tell of all God's works. This morning when Carrie was talking about the uh, Lord's Supper and leading us into worship, the thing I noticed in that was joy. Did you notice the spirit of joy that was there? That's the spirit that energizes us, not only to worship, but to evangelize. And so I would say, is it possible that we as Christians are more like Asaph than the apostles, that we are more in despair. Is it possible that as we read our newspaper or watch Fox News, as I do, is it possible that it is making us depressed and angry rather than to focus on the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's where our joy comes from. That's where our worship comes from. That's what stimulates our obedience, and that's what promotes evangelism. The hope of the resurrection, which every Christian should cling to. And that's why every week, 
we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because once a year isn't often enough, folks. Once a year is not often enough. The essence of the gospel is what we celebrate every single Sunday. And frankly, we should celebrate it every single day. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's where we get our forgiveness of sins. That's where we get our joy. That's where we get our hope to go on in a dark, dark world. Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection. I pray that all of those in my hearing have come to enter that through faith in the Lord Jesus. There is someone who is not. Help them to see that their sin separates them from you. Their rejection of Jesus Christ points them to an eternity of judgment. May they trust in what Christ has done to bear the penalty for their sins. Help us, Father, to be joyful, expectant people who are declaring your works as Asaph came to do and as the apostles in the book of Acts did because they know that we have a sure and certain hope. In Jesus' name, amen.